Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today we are kicking off a new two-part series around the economics and financial market implications of Omicron. Uh, So in this episode, we'll be talking about the impact of Omicron on China in particular, both because of the size and importance of China itself, but also because the particular strategy that China has used to confront COVID has quite important implications for global supply chains. And so in the second half of this conversation, we'll delve a bit more deeply into those supply chain issues and what they mean for inflation. Then in the next episode of this series, we'll focus on sort of the policy dilemmas that these developments have thrown up for policymakers and how policy is likely to evolve over the next couple of years. But in the meantime, I am delighted to say I am joined today by my colleagues, Robert Gilhuy, who is our senior emerging market economist, and Sri Kochkevinden, who is also a senior economist and spent a lot of time thinking about the drivers of inflation. So, Bob, starting with you, as I sort of alluded to at the start there, China's had quite a particular strategy when it comes to dealing with COVID-1 that sort of makes it stand out from much of the rest of the world now, at least where much of the rest of the world has got to, this so-called zero COVID strategy. So my first question is just what exactly does zero COVID involve and how did that strategy evolve over 2021? I mean, zero COVID kind of... As, as it implies, it's not necessarily aiming for, for zero and a complete eradication. I mean, the authorities have come out a bit more recently and kind of specifying they call zero is like a dynamic clearing. So when they identify cases, they kind of do basically everything they can to get cases down to zero so people can go back to kind of living, hopefully, a relatively uh, uninterrupted kind of COVID, COVID life. And, you know, I mean, you know, take a step back, zero COVID has effectively kept cases, you know, relative to the size of China's population pretty much around around zero uh, since after the, the, the initial burst in, in early 2020. Uh, but, you know, it has required, I think, probably more restrictions, particularly, you know, Delta was more transmissible. That required a few more restrictions in 2021 than the second half uh, of 2020. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's uh, not been without its cost, of course. I mean, if we look at the, the year-on-year uh, GDP growth rates, the, the headline numbers there, Back in Q1 2021, it was one of the highest highest rates actually ever recorded at 18.3% year on year. But the real news there was in the, actually the sequential quarter on quarter growth rate, which gives a much better sense uh, of how curtailing the Lunar New Year last year led to this kind of weird stalling growth. Indeed, that growth number was it was about 18 percentage points lower, only 0.3%. Uh, and you know, of course, Luke, you and I were discussing with Paul Lukachevsky back in December quite difficult to disentangle, you know, the COVID shock uh, from other shocks that were hitting the economy. Particularly, you know, we had quite a lot of property sector weakness. That was definitely a factor uh, in the, the latter half of the year. Um, and I guess also additionally, you know, it's difficult to disentangle kind of how COVID and zero COVID has interacted with the service sector. Uh, one might have thought that essentially closing the borders would have boosted domestic tourism. But, you know, staycations actually proved to be kind of relatively not, not that popular. Uh, so it could be a sign that, you know, maybe it's just the, the policy dynamics that weren't particularly supportive for kind of households uh, were playing a role there too. Perfect. So the evidence 
so far seems to be that Omicron is without a doubt much more transmissible than previous COVID waves, but also much less severe, leading to sort of lower hospitalization rates versus the number of cases. And also those waves seem to pass through extremely quickly, notably in South Africa, the UK, both of which where cases are falling or have fallen quite sharply. And that's allowed these countries to start scaling back restrictions. And, you know, the UK looks set to remove most of its restrictions, at least in England, by the end of January. So given these particular dynamics of Omicron, how it is rather different to, say, the Delta or other previous waves, how is China responding to these specific dynamics? Yeah, I mean, so so far, the authorities, I don't think, are taking uh, much comfort from that kind of lower lower health impact that, that you've described there. And, so, you know, China's got very high levels of vaccination, over, over 85%. Many children are vaccinated too. Uh, but despite that, you know, authorities do seem to be committed to maintaining uh, the zero COVID strategy. Indeed, you know, we've seen an increasing number of kind of travel restrictions between kind of what are deemed to be higher risk areas ahead of the Lunar New Year, given that kind of risk that large scale migration potentially poses for a more transmissible uh, variant. It does seem to be a bit more maybe targeted than the approach we saw uh, at the kind of the start of last year. So the Winter Olympics is another reason why authorities might not want to change uh, approach in, in the near term. But beyond that, I think you're really talking about uncertainty uh, about the efficacy of Chinese vaccines. And of course, the flip side of having successfully held cases uh, around zero is you know, effectively no exposure uh, amongst the, the general population too. Uh, and this kind of seems like a stronger reason, if you will, that, that the authorities may well keep going uh, with their current approach. And then, of course, there's also a key political event towards the end of the year. President Xi is widely expected to take this unprecedented third term of the 20th Party Congress. So another potential motivation to keep the zero strategy going over 2022. So I understand those reasons why zero COVID might be kept in place over 2022. But I guess like taking a slightly longer term view, there is this sense that fundamentally it's not strategy that can be stained forever. I'm somewhat reminded of, of what we call in economics Stein's law, you know, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And so I suppose, <laughs> so is my question is like, how does China ever move past pandemic? What is it that causes this strategy to ultimately stop? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good point. And it's very interesting that China seems to have set this exceptionally high bar for itself. Uh, but as you say, you know, it's not, it's not uh, tenable to hold at zero uh, forever. So kind of how, how might that change? Uh, I think one way could be the authorities looking to roll out kind of more likely domestically made uh, mRNA vaccines uh, or boosters before potentially considering a kind of, I think probably a gradual shift away from zero. China certainly does have a very large manufacturing capacity, it has shown it can roll out vaccines very quickly too. But even so, I think this could still imply you know, a significant delay versus other countries. You might be talking in 2022 or even sometime in 2023. And then I guess just aside from the kind of practicalities of, of vaccination, you know, a lot has just been invested, I think, in the narrative uh, of the importance of zero within China. You know, it's a demonstration. The government's handled the crisis better than other countries. So potentially communications could be a challenge. Uh, and, you know, case numbers and hospitalizations could be high in an abs in absolute terms, even if they are able to kind of keep it low relative 
to population. You know, if, if Omicron was to be kind of let loose, it could easily be talking about a million cases uh, a day uh, in China. Now, obviously, the state does have uh, very powerful communication tools, to put it to put it lightly, and you know the regulatory shocks in 2021 are an example of how kind of the closed nature of China's political system, tightly controlled public discourse, can result in kind of policy shifts, kind of seemingly kind of coming out of nowhere uh, and and surprising, uh, surprising there. So I sort of, yeah, I get the idea that there's this way to open up domestic restrictions gradually, but then there's still the issue of international travel uh, as well, right? And the speed in which China can open up to the rest of the world. So is there a sense in which they're going to be forced to change tactic because of what's going on in the rest of the world? Or, you know, perhaps to put it slightly glibly, do these border restrictions become something of a of a new great wall, as it were? Yeah, no, I think, I think, that's, a, I think that's a good... Uh, a good way of framing it. I think border controls are probably going to be one of the last things that really get kind of uh, eased off, given the kind of difficulty uh, of tracking and tracing uh, visitors. Um, I, mean, I would say, you know, China has shown it's got a pretty effective track and trace system, certainly the kind of political will to put in large scale uh, lockdowns. But, you know, there is this risk that Omicron's higher transmissibility, what seems to be a shorter incubation period, which is just milder symptoms, uh, and kind of possible asymptomatic carriers might make it harder to kind of maintain zero. So you're, you're right, we could get some sort of kind of forced uh, move there. I think this probably implies, though, more frequent restrictions uh, over the course of this year, I think, to be put in place rather than necessarily being forced to change. But on the other hand, you know, Omicron did just emerge effectively just ahead of Lunar New Year travel period. So there is some risk, I think, that cases start surprising. Uh, there's a risk here, I think, that the targeted approach travel restrictions is maybe too reactive rather than kind of proactive. Uh, and you know, I think as well, there's some doubt out there about kind of the assertions of COVID being imported by the mail or kind of being coming in on frozen food. Perhaps they're indicating some uh, cracks in the wall, uh, as 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 you put it. Brilliant. So turning to you then, Sue, I mean, as we were talking about there, the fact that China has this domestic zero COVID policy has quite important implications as to how it relates to the rest of the world, the kind of restrictions that it has, but also in terms of its own economic activity, areas of significant economic production suddenly shutting down. So my question is, what are the global spillovers of China maintaining zero COVID? I mean, how how do we go about assessing the risks to, to global supply chains from this? I think it's worth um, maybe starting with a quick review of some of the most important supply constraints that we saw during the pandemic and how they evolved, just to bit of, bring a bit of context into this, this question. Um, so if you remember last year, there were a combination of flat factors at play, and these were included an increase in consumer demand for goods um, related to remote working and homeschooling and so on. And there were disruptions across uh, transport networks, semiconductor production was a key bottleneck, labor shortages, factory outages. This combination led to a very severe delays across the global production network and the distribution of, of, of goods. Um, now, the main areas where bottlenecks were most intense were in the supply of key intermediate inputs, such as semiconductors, as, as I mentioned, um, but also major shipping routes, and in particular, there were issues around the US ports um, 
and this increased the cost of freight along um, shipping routes, particularly from um, Asia to the west coast of the US. Now, these were issues that were already there at the, you know, the, the roots of which were at the beginning of the pandemic, um, but they were starting to resolve. And then we, over the late summer, we saw the COVID spread across Asia, starting to derail the recovery across those um, goods production and distribution networks. Um, now, in particular, China has, as we all know, a very important role within the global supply chain. And the, the Delta wave had a knock-on impact in terms of port closures across China, but also factory closures across ASEAN. Um, and some of the key semiconductor producers were, were hit quite, quite hard during that period. So what we're seeing right now is that there's a risk that the resurg a resurgence of these delays as a result of Omicron being so highly transmissible, as you mentioned earlier, and the combination combine that with continued zero tolerance. Um, so this could lead to some renewed delays and intermittent bouts of disruption going forward. Sure. And it's interesting that you say renewed delays there, because I think I'm I'm right in saying for as much as sort of these global supply chain issues plagued us for a lot of last year were an important driver of higher inflation, sort of by October, November sign, there were sort of early evidence that some of those issues were starting to be resolved? I mean, is that fair to say that the evidence was that things had started to get better before Omicron kicked in? That That is true. That is correct. Um, we were starting to see the signs of the green shoots of recovery um, were emerging as, as early as October, November. And we're starting to see that in transport and some of the measures of freight costs. Um, they're still elevated, but they had declined from the highs that we'd seen uh, during September, October time. Um, and there are a number of um, measures that have taken place uh, in order to alleviate some of the pressures. And that, for example, across LA ports, there was increased coverage there. They'd shifted to 27, 24-7 um, coverage uh, to help you know, alleviate some of the congestion. Um, we were also seeing business surveys across many countries starting to improve. Now, some, some of the key questions there focus on you know, the stocks of finished goods uh, and the stocks of work in progress. And what we saw um, was that the stocks of finished goods were incredibly low, but there were still some inventories, uh, fairly elevated inventories of work in progress. Now, this signals that the, the bottlenecks are really hitting those intermediate inputs. And that would, a key example of that would be semiconductors. But that gap um, had started to narrow and finished goods inventories had started to pick up. So that was showing that goods were starting to actually flow and the production of semiconductors had improved, and in turn that led to an increase in production of motor vehicles. So there were a number of uh, different signs of improvement that had begun, but much of this uh, data that we're seeing now refers back to December, November. So it's quite backward looking. So these surveys don't actually reflect the impact of, of, of the Omicron wave just yet. So it is, it's, it's old data that we're seeing out of these surveys now. So if that's old, data and there are good reasons as you say to expect at least in principle why this new wave would lead to a, a renewal of some of those constraints and issues that we've seen but have we actually seen it in the data yet are there any signs that this reversal has gone into recovery any of the sort of the high frequency measures that we track to measure this kind of thing well it is still very early days and as you say we are monitoring some high frequency data um, and Initially, we are seeing very early evidence of some increased congestion around uh, some of the ports um, in, in, in China. 
and in particular the port of Nimbo, that was where we had a, a closure back in late summer and led to, which extended some of the delays uh, last year. We've seen that um, there is an increase in congestion at the port of Ningbo, as well as some of the neighboring ports, including Shanghai. And there are uh, uh, reports that ships have been rerouted in an attempt to try and reduce queuing times. So this isn't enough on its own to signal a continued trend or escalation, but it's definitely something that needs to be monitored quite closely. Um, but then turning to the to LA and a number of different countries actually across ASEAN, what we're seeing is the impact of absenteeism. As that Omicron wave really starts to take hold, we're seeing some st temporary start, staff shortages starting to delay the production process or delay the um, you know the improvements at at the ports. Um, so you know we were already seeing countries struggling with labour shortages. But against that backdrop, we've seen these, um, this extra pressure of absenteeism as the Omicron wave takes hold. And that's particularly a problem in, in, the, in the US, um, as I said, in, in those key ports. Now, that's quite important to monitor because that Asia to US shipping route was where we saw the most, the, the most intense congestion. That's where we saw freight costs were very elevated along that route. Um, and then it will ha could have spillovers across to other routes and impact the global shipping network and the issues with getting containers back onto ships and into other countries and so on. So this could be um, quite important in terms of um, the, the trend going forward and whether those green shoots of recovery are actually sustainable. Um, but it, it could prove to be temporary. Uh, given that uh, one piece of good news is that the Omicron cycle does seem to be running its course quite quickly in some countries, and you can see that across Europe, UK, we saw that some evidence of that in South, South Africa, um, so it could be less disruptive this time around, but the key issue, as um, Bob has mentioned earlier, is the, the case of China, and with zero tolerance policy, we could see more bouts of intermittent bouts of uh, disruption going forward. Um, so, so that's something we have to, cannot predict, but uh, can, need to monitor on, on an ongoing basis. So, so bringing this all together, and as I sort of said there previously, that these global supply chain issues were an important driver of the higher inflation last year. I think higher inflation that came surprised to many people and does seem to be somewhat longer lasting than at least we originally expected. So sort of how does these latest developments change our outlook on on inflation more generally and sort of putting all the various drivers of, of inflation together? How important are these supply chain issues versus all the other issues that we're currently facing? Yes, there were a number of different issues here. Supply chains were quite important last year. Um, it, it does... Um, uh, if we did start seeing uh, one impact was a quite famous impact was on used car prices started to become quite um, elevated as um, we saw the semiconductor disruptions uh, delaying new car production. So there are, there are signs of uh, feed through into inflation. However, we need to put this into the context of the other drivers of inflation. Um, energy price pressures are quite important, probably more important at, at, at the moment. And this is something that we had highlighted in a series of notes that we wrote last year, but um, energy prices, um, we had spoken about the, the risks of energy price spikes during the Northern hemisphere winter. Um, and this is likely to continue uh, through Q1, possibly Q2. There are geopolitical risks there. But as we move into uh, the second half of next year, 
we'll see those energy prices really starting to unwind from um, inflation. And that'll bring, really start to drag inflation, headline inflation numbers lower. Um, so even if uh, oil prices remain quite elevated, that what we call the base effects will drag headline inflation figures lower. And that will be quite a powerful uh, driver of inflation through the rest of this year. Um, supply demand imbalances uh, are particularly extreme in the US. So it's not just a case of talking about shipping costs and um, uh, delays in, in production, but it's also the, the increased demand in, in goods that has been part of the story. Um, and, and we've seen that that demand has been quite strong in the US. So we need to look at this in the context of different countries. We may not see the same sort of inflationary pressures across Europe um, that, that we're seeing um, at, in, at the moment in, in the US. Um, so the, that really sort of leads to the, the key question of, you know, will it contribute to faster withdrawal of, of policy support? Because inflation is also a function of, of, of the policy outlook. And as we're already seeing, the central banks across different countries have become more hawkish in response to uh, the developments in across uh, supply chains, Omicron, and, and also the, um, the, the demand uh, backdrop as well. Sorry, I think that is a brilliant place to end it, not least because you've done a very good job of setting up uh, our next uh, episode in this series on the policy responses and the kind of trade-offs that policymakers might be facing as a consequence of these dynamics. So we will leave it here this week. So all that remains for me to do is thank Bob and Sri for their excellent insights and to thank you all for listening and to remind you to please do subscribe, like, review, rate our podcast on your favoured podcast platform. And uh, we look forward to speaking to you again soon. So thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.